Basically, we, uh, we wanted to talk about machine learning because we felt like there weren't enough talks being done on machine learning and wanted to you know, add to the pile. Um, and so my name is James Dunn. I'm one of the senior product managers in EC2 and uh, managing some of our GPU uh, compute instances. Um, and at Amazon, we have this notion of working backwards from customers. So you know, we'll look at customer experiences and their workloads, um, some of the challenges that they're facing, and try to figure out how to provide a, an adequate solution for them. And so today, we've uh, invited our friends from Facebook to come and talk about some of the machine learning workloads that they're uh, using, um, some of the challenges that they have with, you know, obviously, their, their big scale with their billions and billions of, of active users. And, uh, and then we'll kind of talk about um, you know, what trends we're seeing in machine learning um, and some of the infrastructure that we've built to go and support you know, some of these large-scale workloads around machine learning. Um, and then we'll talk about some of the enhancements uh, just from compute, networking, and storage, um, as well as talk about uh, inference as well. Uh, so uh, with that, you know, Maxim is uh, a research scientist at Facebook, uh, you know, he's been involved with you know, deep learning, numerical methods, and parallel algorithms for, uh, for over a decade at companies like Facebook, NVIDIA, and Intel. So with that, I'll have Maxim come up. Thank you for the introduction, James. Um, welcome to the talk. I appreciate you guys coming here. Um, I will talk a little bit about the challenges and opportunities of architecting AI systems at data center scale. I hope you learn a few new things here uh, about our workloads, and maybe uh, you'll use that information. Uh, it becomes useful for you as well. So first of all, I wanted to kind of delineate the differences between artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning. Those um, words are sometimes used interchangeably. Uh, we use the AI in the title, but we really will be talking about deep learning models here. So artificial intelligence refers to programs with the ability to learn and reason like humans. Uh, machine learning is a subfield of AI. It's a set of statistical techniques that enables machines to improve with experience. And deep learning is really about using multi-layer neural networks um, to learn from vast amount of data, right? So we will be talking mostly about deep learning models here. How does the world look uh, according to deep learning? Well, this is a plot that some of you might have seen before, but this is a plot of deep learning research over the last 30 to 40 years. Um, we see that there was some interest in deep learning in the early days, but it was kind of slowly growing, not, not, not very much. There was a big bump in 2012, and then there was a double exponential growth after that. So what happened? in this bump here. What triggered this exponential growth? Um, right at this point, uh, there was a, a network, deep learning network that was proposed called AlexNet. Uh, it was proposed to, uh, for the ImageNet challenge, uh, and it won that comp competition by leaps and bounds, something that people uh, could not have done in, in previous years. It generated a lot of interest. Um, because people felt that this type of technique could be applied to other fields as well. And uh, they wanted to see you know, what happens, how does it work, and so on. And um, this led to this exponential growth. So how does deep learning compare to other methods? Well, 
first of all, let's try to look at some hypothetical curve be before we look at the precise examples. If we plot accuracy on the vertical axis and we plot data, amount of data and model complexity on the horizontal axis, we'll see that many uh, common uh, machine learning methods, they work well when, uh, or work better than deep learning when there is few data points available, little data, and the mod there are not that many parameters in the model. This is the left bottom part of the graph. However, as more and more data becomes available, the statistical performance of these methods doesn't increase as much, while deep learning perf uh, statistical performance continues to grow more and more uh, with the amounts of data and complexity of the model. I also wanted to point out, and you'll see this throughout the talk, that as you increase data and model complexity, you also need to provide the hardware resources to train these models so that they can achieve their best potential. So now let's look at a concrete example. Uh, this is a Facebook computer vision deep learning model called ResNext. Many of you might have heard of it. It's uh, open sourced. And this plot here shows the complexity of the model on the horizontal axis, and it shows the accuracy, the statistical performance of the models on the vertical axis. There are two curves here. We'll first focus on the gray curve, okay? So we take this model, and you'll see different points on this curve. These are different configurations of the model. But as we go towards the right, the model becomes larger and larger, more complex. And we see that the performance of the model on this task improves, as we have uh, indicated in the previous plot. If we take the same model and then take, rather than taking the ImageNet uh, data set to train it, we train it on Instagram images, about a billion images, but then we still use this model to pre make predictions on ImageNet, we'll end up at a purple curve. So more data that we used resulted in the model being even more accurate. And the more complex model, the further accuracy you get. Now I wanted to show you a general machine learning pipeline. This is very typical uh, at Facebook. And I wanted to discuss some of the characteristics of this pipeline and how it has grown over the years. So first we start with the data, right? We have some warehousing of the data. We pre-process this data to extract um, important features that will be inputs to our models. We train the model. We evaluate how well it is doing. And based on this evaluation, we might take some decisions. We may modify the features that we are feeding to the model. We might decide to make model more complex. We might change the characteristic of the model. We need to experiment a lot with it. But once we are satisfied, we are actually able to then deploy the model to make predictions. So let's focus on the growth in each of those areas and how it has come uh, over the years. If you look at ML data growth, this is the how much data, percentage of data is used from all the data in the warehouse for machine learning pipelines. In 2018, last year, it was about 30%. Uh, this year, it's 50%. So the percentage of the data used for machine, machine learning, deep learning has increased. Moreover, the amount of data in the warehouse has doubled. So overall, there was a growth of about 3x in, in data used for machine learning. With respect to training and evaluation, we also see tremendous growth. For example, if you look at ranking engineers um, that Facebook has, we have twice as many. 
If you look at work, workflows that we use, there are 3x more workflows. And proportionately, the compute for those work, uh, workflows has increased by 3x as well. And with respect to deployment and predictions and inference, we do roughly 400 trillion predictions uh, per day. We do 6.5 billion translations between languages. And what is also important, many of the deep learning models help us remove fake accounts uh, from Facebook website automatically so that people can feel safer online. Now I wanted to show you that this machine learning pipeline doesn't come for free. It relies on many system and hardware resources, and it really strains those resources. So for example, storage resources are used for data and feature uh, extraction. Networking is used all over the place. Um, compute and memory is used for in training and deployment. To make matters worse, as we want to have more complex models, more data, um, we see that if you look at the processor performance, the growth in the performance have slowed down over the years. Uh, this is a plot of essentially how much time it took uh, to double the performance of the processor. We see in the beginning that it roughly took, um, you know, say two years to, to double the processor performance. From 2005 and on, it took 3.5 or more years, six years. And now we are at a point where we expect 2x to come in 20 years. So while we have a high need for our performance and, and resources, the growth in, in performance has actually kind of uh, came to a halt and Moore's law has declined. We see that the solution to that is to do hardware and software co-design so that uh, you optimize your soft, software and hardware systems for specific workflows that we have. And what are those workflows? So there are three main directions uh, that we are concerned about. One is ranking and recommendation, which is used in news feed and search. Second one is computer vision, which includes image classification, object detection, and video understanding. And finally, language uh, translation, speech recognition, and content understanding. Those are all very important to us, and they constitute the three main workloads. This is a slide that shows how much capacity in the data center those workloads use. And this slide might surprise you because many people focus on computer vision models and language models. And you can see that for us, relative to language models, ranking and recommendation takes up 100x more capacity. Computer vision, with respect to computer vision, it's 10x. But the main takeaway of the slide, and I think this is something that not many people um, kind of are aware of or, or focus on, is that recommendation models are among the most important models uh, that run in a data center. So what are the, now that we know the workloads, we know our models, what are the characteristics in terms of operators of those models in terms of compute? How is it broken down? So this is a plot of different common operations that models perform across training and inference. Yellow part of the plot corresponds to matrix-matrix multiplications. It's about 40%. Red part, which is 4.4%, are convolutions. And I wanted to point out that 
some of the convolutions belong to the yellow part because if you have uh, kind of um, irregular filters or strides, mm -hmm. those types of convolutions are often not optimized directly, but rather converted to gems, and gems are used to run them. So overall, for convolutions and gem, we have only 45%, and many people are optimizing those operations, but they are not even the majority of operations that run uh, in, in many of the models. We have about 8% of operations in embedding lookups. Those lookups are used for language models and recommendation systems. We'll see an example later on. And then we have tensor reshapes and a long tail of all kinds of random operations that each model might have on, on its own. So what I would say to the people who are looking at systems and hardware is that you shouldn't just optimize your convolutions and uh, gems. It's very convenient, it's kind of easy to focus on and, and look at, but these are not the only things that we care about. What about memory and storage? So on this slide, I wanted to show for the three groups of workloads that we have, how they map to different um, kind of system resources, right? And we'll split memory into two parts. We'll split bandwidth and capacity. Capacity is the amount of memory you need. Recommendation system models are pretty, are typically require a lot of memory. They're very, very big models, much bigger than any other model. Uh, they require a lot of bandwidth for the embedding lookups. Um, they require interconnect because if you are running in a distributed or parallel setting, you'll exercise that interconnect, as you'll see later. And they still have a relatively high compute rate because those models also have MLPs and they still need to finish the computation. On the other hand, computer vision uh, has a high memory capacity, but not because of the model itself, but mostly because of the inputs. Inputs such as video can be very, um, can require a lot of memory, so you know, you need a lot of memory to store things, but it's not the model per se necessarily. They don't need memory bandwidth, they don't need so much of the interconnect, and they have a very high compute rate, as we all know. Language models, on the other hand, are, require relatively high capacity. Uh, they exercise interconnect because they have many different operations, uh, sometimes attention, for example, may, may exercise it a lot, and they have a high compute rate. And what's also important to take away here is that as I have shown you in the machine learning pipeline on the previous slide, people often iterate when they um, work on these models, when they design the models. So what is really important is to provide a lot of flexibility to the, to the engineers and researchers who are looking into those problems. They want to have experiments fast, but they also want to have the flexibility for fast prototyping. So how about network? So we will look at network from a perspective of a deep learning recommendation model. I chose this example because I think it's not a common example that people show, and I think it's something that can um, be more, more insightful to people in the talk. Uh, this is a generic deep learning recommendation model that we have open sourced. It's on Facebook Research GitHub. Uh, we call it DLRM. And let's try to understand the components of this model before we go to the networking. Um, resources that it exercises. First of all, the input to the model consists of two types of features. There are dense features, these are continuous numbers, usually concatenated into a vector, just floating point numbers. There are sparse features, those are categorical features, usually a set of integer indices, for example, that are used to, we use to look up vectors in embeddings. Uh, 
<coughs> dense features are processed through a set of MLPs. These are MLPs that require your compute in this model. And sparse features, uh, once you look up the embedding vectors, they are um, pulled together into a single vector and then interacted during feature interaction, and the results are fed into further top MLP. Let us now zoom in on the embedding lookup, because perhaps this is not an operation that is common, commonly used. Um, and let's try to understand what it does. So we have a set of indices. Here I have shown a wide embedding table, and we are looking vectors A, B, and C. Our pooling operation is a sum operation. And the result is a single vector that is propagated further in the model. Uh, it's interesting to see that this operation can be also seen as a sparse uh, dot product versus a dense, so, so sparse vector times a dense vector. If we represent the indices as a multi-hot encoding and we multiply it with a transpose of my embedding table, I'll obtain the same result. And if I actually build many of such vectors, I'll have a sparse matrix times a tall dense matrix. Uh, an operation that's very common in linear algebra. If you wanted to run this model in parallel or distributed setting, we have a couple of choices to make. Right, so before we put the entire model in a distributed uh, set of nodes or devices, let's focus on MLPs. Uh, we'll use, we always have a choice of model and data parallelism. Here we are gonna actually, for MLPs, we'll assume we are gonna use data parallelism. In this case, we have two choices. We have, we can run a parameter server and then asynchronously communicate between MLPs, or we can put our MLPs across different devices or processing units and perform an all-reduce running in synchronous fashion. Let's assume we choose the later. And let's now add our embeddings that we have seen in the model. So embeddings cannot be often put uh, together on a single processing unit or a node. They cannot be put together because they require a lot of memory and there is simply not enough memory on the node or, or, or the device that you are choosing to put them on. So here I chose one embedding per node. Could be many, but there is some limited amount. And they are not replicated. Their MLPs are replicated here. The embeddings are different, right? They're different on each node. So for embeddings, we essentially used model parallelism. We put each operator separately. Each operator receives the entire batch of lookups, it performs its own lookup, and then it distributes parts of the result, right, to each of the bottom uh, uh, processing units which have the ML replicated MLPs, which accept part of the um, batches because they're data parallel. The operation between the embedding processing units is all-to-all uh, -all personalized communication. Sometimes we refer it, refer it as butterfly shuffle because it just resembles a butterfly a little bit. And the operation between the bottom MLPs is an all-reduce. And it's very clear from this model that um, we will exercise a lot of networking here because we'll need to shuffle this element, we'll need to perform all-reduce, and so on and so forth, at least in the way we mapped the model to our system, hypothetical system right now. So now we have done some experiments uh, with different models on different um, types of systems. We have experimented with AWS system with an elastic network adapter. AWS system with an elastic fabric adapter. This is a new, uh, kind of a more advanced uh, version. And we also ran on our FAIR uh, Facebook AI research cluster. 
It's important to note that these systems, they differ particularly in the interconnects that's used in them. AWS ENA is about uh, 20 gigabits per second, maybe a little bit higher. EFA is about 100 gigabits per second, and FAIR provides 100 by 4 gigabits per second. And as we look at these models, these are not recommendation models, these are language models, but still, we can see that their relative performance increases as we provide more and more uh, interconnect uh, support to families. And we also think that in the future, many of the upcoming workloads, for example, graph learning, will exercise interconnect even more, and it will become even more important. So now that we understand our workloads, our systems, our models, and a few examples, um, as I said before, one of the critical pieces that people look for is to be able to easily experiment with them. And I wanted to take the, a couple of slides to talk about programmability. We believe in the PyTorch framework a lot. I think it's a spectacular framework. It's very easy to use. If you haven't tried it by any chance, give it a try. It's very natural. It provides eager graph-based execution, dynamic neural networks. Uh, it does support distributed training and uh, accelerated inference on hardware. And the entire focus of the framework is on simplicity over complexity. It should be easy to experiment with and write your code and um, you know, things happen from there. We are also putting a lot of focus on uh, going from prototyping to deployment in PyTorch. We want not only for you to experiment in PyTorch, but also to be able to deploy the models in PyTorch. Um, if you're interested in more details, uh, about PyTorch, you can always go to pytorch.org for many tutorials and documentations. They have spectacular forums. You can also look at several of the models that I have described in the talk on Facebook Research GitHub or PyTorch GitHub. They're all available for you to play with. And if you want to try PyTorch on AWS, I have also provided at the bottom several links that you can try and, and play with it. And with that, uh, I wanted to uh, give the stage back to James, who is going to talk to you a little bit more about AWS and how you can uh, work with it. All right. Thank you, Maxim. <clears throat> All right. And uh, don't worry. We're aware that the replay party is coming up, and so we'll make sure you guys aren't late for that. Um, just uh, show of hands, how many people are running some kind of machine learning workload today? OK, wow, a lot of you. And how many people are doing uh, machine learning training um, that's distributed? So more than one, uh, more than one server of GPUs. Okay. Oh wow, that's a good amount. Okay. Awesome. Um, and so, um, you know, not everyone can operate at the scale that Facebook has, and um, you know, we don't we don't all have large data centers like Facebook has, and so. You know, what AWS is trying to do is provide, you know, that quality of infrastructure, that scale of infrastructure um, for, for everyone else, right? And so if you look at, you know, some of the customers that are using um, AWS today and machine learning workloads on AWS, you know, we have, you know, tens of thousands of customers that are already using uh, machine learning already. And, you know, the vast majority of the customers that we do talk to um, are at least thinking about it and, and deeply investigating, you know, how do we use machine learning? 
and you know, and there may be you know some customers uh, in this room that you know your logo is on the screen, and we thank you for that. And you know, we want to continue to work with you and, and understand your feedback and, and continuously improve on what we're doing. Um, but it's always great to see you know more and more customers. I mean, a lot of the customers here you know were in Andy's keynote, and you know have really really cool applications. You know, customers like uh, Intuit, the NFL with sports analytics. Um, you know, making travel better with you know companies like Lyft and Expedia, and so we're really excited to, to continue to add and and grow uh, the amount of ML uh, customers that we have. So here are just a few of the the use cases that people are doing, and so um, you know, the, in in the fullness of time, we expect you know almost every application to be infused with some amount of machine learning. Um, but you know it's still early, and you know there's a small subset of uh, applications that I'm showing here that you know I wanted to highlight. And so, you know, in, in areas like manufacturing, um, we have customers like Formosa Plastics that are using machine learning to do better detection of uh, defects on the production line. Um, in retail, there's customers like Zalando that are doing uh, creating better customer experiences for their customers using personalization. Uh, in healthcare and sciences, life sciences, which is a, a really interesting area where you know improving patient lives um, is really a, a hugely impactful thing, and, and customers like Celgene are doing that by discovering new treatments and new drugs um, to help uh, help do that using machine learning. Uh, in travel and logistics, uh, customers like Atlas Van Lines are doing uh, better van capacity management and, and dynamic price management. Uh, and then lastly, in, in energy, uh, the Connect Energy Group is using machine learning to better predict future demand and supply of electricity. And so one of the main goals we have at AWS is to provide machine learning uh, for every developer. And, and we know developers are all at different levels of skill set. Um, and so you know, what we've done with our machine learning stack is actually kind of categorize it into three different groups. Um, and these three areas are kind of targeting these different skill levels. So if you look at that top layer uh, of AI services, um, you know, these are meant for um, you know, p developers that may have little or no ML experience. Uh, so they can take these services and build uh, sophisticated AI-driven applications, um, such as call centers, uh, you know, live media subtitling. Uh, it could be understanding voice of the customer. And they can do all these things without having to build and train uh, their own machine learning models. Uh, you know, we have services like Recognition that help with image and video analytics. Uh, we have text-to-speech and speech-to-text with services like uh, Poly and Transcribe. Um, people can leverage the decades of experience from our retail side with Amazon.com with the forecasting tool. And uh, you know, as you can see from the keynotes uh, announcements, you know, we're continuing to add tons and tons of features um, at this layer for AI services. But if we want to actually help machine learning get to the levels that we want it to be at, we realize we need to make uh, developing their own, your own machine learning models a little bit easier and more accessible. And that's why at that middle layer, we created Amazon SageMaker. Uh, Amazon SageMaker is a fully managed service that helps, um, helps, you, helps guide you every step of the machine learning development process from uh, labeling data, curating your data, uh, building your models, and uh, training them, deploying them, and everything in between. Um, and again, as you saw yesterday, we are, are two days uh, in Andy's keynote, 
there is a ton of uh, new features and services that are around SageMaker. And it's hard for um, you know, all of us to even keep up. There, there's so much advancement and uh, innovation being done in that area. And so we'll continue to add uh, more capabilities within SageMaker. And then at that final layer, the lower layer, we have the frameworks and infrastructure. And, and that's where you know, we'll talk a little bit more about in, in this presentation. And you know, we support all the major frameworks, TensorFlow, MXNet, PyTorch. Um, and we actually have dedicated teams that are within AWS that are looking specifically at those frameworks, doing optimizations for a lot of the various models. So a lot of customers will come and say, you know, we're using TensorFlow or PyTorch or MXNet, and our models you know, aren't performing as well as we'd like. And so you know, we'll have teams that help optimize. They know those uh, frameworks inside out and, and help it run optimally on the AWS infrastructure. And if we move over to the actual infrastructure side, you know, we've got a lot of different EC2 instances that uh, I'll talk about uh, as well in this presentation and you know, targeted specifically at machine learning. And we'll continue to add uh, a lot of investments here as well. So if you look at our, our portfolio for accelerated compute, uh, uh, specifically for machine learning workloads, uh, you may be wondering, what, what do I use for, for what? You know, a lot of these times, um, you, know, you don't know the difference between different GPUs, and you don't know which one's better for which workloads. Um, but there is somewhat of a, a clear distinction between training workloads and inference workloads. Um, so just by a show of hands, how many people are doing uh, machine learning training specifically? And then contrast it, how many people are doing inference workloads? Okay, it's a decent balance. Um, so, you know, if we think about the training side of it, um, really the, the P3 and P3 family are the primary vehicles for, for training workloads. You know, these have the most compute performance, and as Maxim was talking about, this is where engineers want to experiment and iterate constantly. And, and we, we, we've built P3 and P3DN specifically to have the most compute performance and most powerful GPUs. Um, you know, we want our, our, your data scientists and your engineers to have uh, you know, high productivity. So if they're waiting around for models to train, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that your data scientists and, and ML practitioners um, cost a little bit more than uh, what a P3 GPU would cost. And so, uh, so P3, P3DN, those are going to be uh, the primary platforms for machine learning training. But having said that, we did recently announce G4, which uh, about a month and a half ago. And these actually were really targeted for inference workloads, but uh, after you know, doing some benchmarks and results for it, it actually turns out to be fairly cost-effective for certain types of model training. Uh, so these are smaller models uh, where maybe you don't care as much about time to train. Uh, you're a little bit more flexible on that, on that side it does actually become a little bit more cost effective for certain model types, such as vision models where uh, you don't need super fast interconnects between servers and you don't need uh, you know, super large memory sizes. But for, you know, if time to train is the most important thing, uh, the P3s and P3DNs are gonna be your, your best bet. And if we switch over to the inference side, um, you know, by our estimates, the inference workload and cost of the inference workloads is that it makes, it makes up about 90% of the overall cost. And that's because if you think about it, 
training you do you know, less frequently, maybe once or twice a week or once a month, uh, whereas inference is happening constantly. There's constantly predictions happening, uh, and that's more of a, your steady state workloads. And so this is the area where um, you know, we wanted to do, provide some additional investment and, and make, big, make better products for you guys. Uh, previously, we had you know, primarily GPU instances and, and even CPU instances were, were used a lot for inference. Um, and so that's why we introduced G4 to improve on the inference workloads, got better performance, better latency, and lowering the cost, to, cost of inference compared to uh, older GPU platforms like the P2. Um, and then beyond that, if we, we felt like there was still improvement that could be made. And so we actually designed our own custom accelerator called Inferentia, and, and we built an instance around it called the Inf1 Instances. And, and anytime you build a special purpose accelerator, um, you're gonna get better performance, better power efficiency, and, and all the cost savings that, that we incurred on, on the infrastructure side, we're actually passing that on to our customers through the instance pricing. And so with Inf1, we're actually able to get the lowest cost per inference in the cloud. Um, very high throughput, very low latency. And you know, there, we're, we have there's this notion of you know, we want to build the right tool for the right job. We don't just want one GPU platform to, to serve any kind of, every kind of machine learning workload. We're gonna continue to add uh, different types of platforms for specific use cases. Um, so you know, we're in Vegas, if I were a betting man, I would say this, this portfolio of, of ML uh, compute instances will probably grow uh, this time next year. So if we focus uh, specifically on the P3 uh, and P3DN instances, uh, we launched P3 in October 2017. Uh, we're actually the, the first, to mar uh, first in the cloud to offer these uh, GPUs. And, uh, and then last year at reInvent, we launched the P3DNs. And both of these instances are still really the gold standard when it comes to machine learning training uh, platforms. If you look at the latest MLPerf results, which is kind of the, the go-to uh, for benchmark results uh, of these ML workloads, the V100 GPUs are at or near the top across all the various model types, and more importantly, across all the different frameworks. Uh, you know, there could be other training platforms out there that are, are specific to certain model types or specific to certain frameworks, um, but the P3 and P3DNs are, are very flexible across all of them. Um, they're also available in 14 different regions around the world. Um, so it's important that to a lot of our customers that have the compute local to where their data resides, so whatever country they're in, uh, transferring large amounts of data is you know, not fun and uh, can be cost prohibitive. And, and there could be data sovereignty preferences for certain countries. So uh, it was important to us to make sure that we had you know, wide availability uh, of these instances around the world. Um, and so if we look at the actual hardware of, of P3s, um, you know, we have eight of these V100 GPUs in a single server. Um, and so we're actually able to get one petaflop of compute from a single instance size. That's the most you'll, you'll find uh, across all of EC2. The other important thing with the P3s is they have very fast GPU memory. So the, the, there's a lot of data transfer between the GPU and the GPU memory. And so these have a special high bandwidth memory that offers 900 gigabytes per second. Uh, so very fast transfer between the GPU memory and the GPU. The other important thing is these have uh, a very fast GPU to GPU interconnect. So prior to P3, like for P2 for instance, 
For a GPU to talk to another GPU, it actually had to go over the PCI Express bus to the CPU and then back down to the other GPU over PCI Express. Um, and it's latency and it's much slower bandwidth than uh, what NVIDIA created called NVLink. And that offers actually 300 gigabytes per second um, and, and direct connections between the GPUs. So with uh, training workloads, the all reduce function, uh, there's a lot of GPU to GPU communication. Uh, and so that link is actually pretty important. And then the other thing that we, a lot of customers were talking about, within a server, you know, it was about as fast as it could be. But when you go to more than one server, that interconnect between servers was actually the bottleneck. And Maxim talked about that um, with our various technologies and, and, their, um, and their clusters as well, that server-to-server -server interconnect, interconnect became very important. And so that's why we introduced the P3DNs. Uh, these have four times the networking throughput, uh, up, so up to 100 gigabits per second. Um, so that really kind of opened up uh, you know, multi-node training. And then the other important thing we added on that was EFA, which I'll talk about a little bit later in this presentation. So the key difference between P3 and P3DN, uh, the GPU memory, so if you need uh, large data sets, large model sizes, larger batch sizes, that doubling of GPU memory becomes uh, important. And then if you want to do the multi-node training, that's where P3DN really shines. Uh, there are a few other improvements we made on P3DN. So we actually increased the, or updated the CPU. So we went from a Broadwell-class Intel CPU to a Skylake processor. Uh, so you get a few more uh, CPU cores. You get also get uh, the AVX512 instruction set, which um, was actually important for a few customers that, that, are, that are doing image classification uh, model training where the images needed to be resized, uh, uh, rotated, cropped, uh, and a lot of that pre-processing work uh, can be accelerated with the, the AVX 512 instruction set. So what's really driving the need for uh, you know, large-scale, multi-node distributed training? Um, if you look at some of the model sizes and the trends that we're seeing in terms of model complexity, um, you know, it's, it's going up and to the right. And, and you know, it's a fast-changing landscape. There are new papers and new models being introduced you know, regularly uh, within the machine learning community. And so we're seeing you know, a need for this uh, you know, advanced infrastructure to help uh, keep up with the, the compute needs. Right? And so you see ResNet 50 kind of towards the end. That, you know, that for a long time, that was kind of the go-to model to really stress test um, the compute performance of, uh, of your training platform. Uh, but you can see that's at the very far left. And you know, at 26 million parameters, um, you know, it, it kind of is pretty small compared to some of the newer language, uh, language um, processing models. So with BERT uh, introduced you know, last year, that really represented a, a pretty big increase in complexity and, and compute requirements for training that model. Um, you know, it, it's, but it's, it's warranted. It's a state of the art in terms of uh, language understanding. Um, it, it really kind of opened a lot of eyes in terms of what was possible in terms of uh, natural language understanding. Uh, and, and people are doing, uh, you know, variations of BERT as well. Uh, our, our friends at Facebook created something called Roberta, which is a, a variant of BERT that, add, that really increases the amount of data. Uh, but with that comes uh, increased compute, uh, compute requirements. Right? And so, I mean, unless you have, you know, a thousand GPUs and a whole day to train, um, it's going to be tough to, to train Roberta. 
And, and you know, even at the far extreme, there are models like GPT-2, uh, which you know, really increases the amount of uh, parameters and, and subsequently the amount of GPU requirements. So th these are some of the trends we're seeing um, in the machine learning model complexity and you know, why we, we're investing in uh, building out our infrastructure to support that. So if you look at just the P3, a single P3 instance, um, eight D100 GPUs, we're able to get you know, reasonable training times for some of the, the you know, standard models around uh, object detection, um, some of the more primitive uh, language translation models and image recognition models. Um, but one interesting thing is just the hardware um, isn't the whole story, right? So um, the same hardware, eight V100 GPUs, a couple of years ago, uh, took about eight hours to train ResNet 50. And then now it's under two hours, so it, with the same exact hardware. And that's from the optimizations we do in, in the framework level, at the model level, uh, and, and the entire software stack. So we'll continue to you know, improve on um, you know, how we optimize these models. But then when we go to you know, models like BERT, um, you know, we're seeing huge increases in the amount of time it takes, from you know, minutes and hours to now days and days. Um, so that becomes very challenging, right? We don't want your data scientists and, and engineers to just sit around waiting uh, for these models to train uh, and make one, you know, and make changes and iterations on the model. It takes, you know, a week and a half to do that. So that's why, uh, you know, with P3DN and, and EFA technology, we're able to, you know, scale to multiple GPUs, uh, whether it's, you know, in the, you can see in the graph, you know, we went from eight GPUs in a single server uh, to 64, 128, and 128 and beyond, and we're seeing huge improvements in the amount of time it takes to train. And then, you know, to really kind of push the envelope, we, we provisioned 2,048 GPUs and, and reduced that time down to an hour. Um, and so that was really, uh, you know, a lot of work in terms of, you know, different components around the compute, networking, uh, and model optimization that helped us get to that uh, record number. So underlying um, within that 100 gigabit networking is EFA, Elastic Fabric Adapter. Uh, and you, know, you can see actually on the previous slide, the TCP version, which is uh, our ENA technology versus EFA. And you can see there is uh, a, a pretty significant improvement between those two technologies. And that's purely on the networking side uh, and how we uh, transmit packets. And so that's where we created EFA. Uh, you know, we knew there were lots of these tightly coupled workloads, both on the HPC side and the machine learning side. Uh, and so we, we knew there needed to be a better protocol than TCP. Uh, and so we were able to get lower latency and, and higher throughput with, the, with this technology. So let's look at a little bit closer how we, how we do this. So at the core is the scalable, reliable datagram. Um, so this, the way these packets are transmitted is, is a bit different than TCP. And, uh, you know, we looked at, you know, some of the popular on-premises um, networking technologies like InfiniBand, uh, but we knew that wouldn't exactly fit in our uh, network infrastructure. We, you know, we talk to customers a lot and, and understand how their applications work, and then we, you know, we know how we design our networking infrastructure, and so we had to make some changes in terms of how, uh, how to build this out. And one of the key pieces was um, the uh, out-of-order delivery of packets. 
So we relaxed that, that packet delivery uh, scheme and so that um, you know, as there's packet losses um, and, and you know, the system was waiting for a particular packet to arrive, that caused uh, slowdowns in the applications. And we know packet loss happens pretty regularly. And also, uh, you know, talking with customers, applications don't necessarily need uh, to wait uh, for a single packet a lot of times. And that out-of-order packet delivery uh, was actually one of the key pieces that makes uh, EFA work uh, much faster and is much more resilient. Another key piece is multipath routing. So um, the way we design our network infrastructure is that between any two no network nodes, there's actually multiple paths uh, between those two nodes. And, and knowing that, we took advantage of that with um, the, the SRD protocol and that we spray packets across all of these multiple paths. Um, and that way we know that you know, packets can arrive and uh, we can uh, reassemble them effectively uh, without you know, caring about a single packet that's being lost. And so um, you know, this also helps with uh, bandwidth as well. So by transmitting multiple packets at the same time across multiple paths, um, you know, one, we're resilient against packet loss, uh, and we're actually able to get um, you know, better delivery and throughput due to this. Um, and so here's kind of a side-by-side -side comparison uh, of SRD versus TCP. So instead of a, a single stream of packets with TCP that need to be in a particular order, we send messages, and these can be out of order, and they can come at, you know, at, come at whenever they do come and be reassembled uh, at the application level. Um, we also have uh, the ability to dynamically tune the timeout period. So instead of having a, a higher fixed period, we can dynamically adjust it at the microsecond level. Uh, and then, yeah, as I said, the end result is we can actually see up to 3x throughput improvement uh, compared to TCP-based uh, applications. So we'll switch gears a little bit to storage. Um, you know, with these large machine learning uh, clusters, you know, loading the data and providing enough data fast enough become, became a bottleneck at, at some point. And so uh, you know, there are solutions out there that we provide EBS um, or EFS. Some of those just weren't quite uh, up to the, the task of handling some of these very large machine learning clusters. And so um, luckily there, there was a product called FSX for Luster that was announced last year that really helps provide a fully managed parallel file system. Uh, and there are a number of benefits uh, with FSX for Luster. You know, massively scalable performance, so as your cluster grows and scales, the amount of data you use scales, the performance also scales along with that. Um, it's very easy to connect this to standard data repositories. S3 buckets is very common for people to store data into. This connects very easily to that. It can also connect to your on-premises data stores as well. Uh, it's very simple. You know, parallel file systems, typically, it's fairly complex to set up, but FSX for Lustre makes that much easier. Um, it's very cost-optimized and such that um, you use it only when you're actually running a workload and you can shut it down if you're not using it. Uh, and, and security compliance, that's always a key priority for us in all of our services. So on the, on the performance side, we're actually able to get you know, hundreds of gigabytes per second of throughput. Uh, and, and sub-second, millisecond latencies, um, you know, and also support thousands and thousands of cores. Uh, 
Um, as I said, it, it acts kind of as a caching layer between S3 and your compute clusters. And so as out, uh, your, your processing uh, results, that output can then also be synced back to S3 very easily. So now let's look at you know, a lot of these pieces combined with the, the compute clusters in the center, right? And so you can be hundreds, thousands of GPUs using P3 and P3DNs. Um, it has that very fast 100 gigabit networking interconnect with EFA technology in the case of P3DN. Um, and another uh, key piece that, that's shown in here is the idea around cluster placement groups. Um, so by specifying your node as a cluster placement group, that actually provisions the resources all very close to each other, a lot of times in the same room in the data center. That offers much better latency and also helps um, you know, make sure that there's very uh, fast connections between the, the nodes. In a lot of cases, we're actually able to see almost 20% uh, improvement for some of these really large nodes by using uh, cluster placement groups. Um, we have our, our file system with FSx to you know, provide uh, data to all of the servers very quickly, very fast. And um, you know, a lot of people use um, AWS Batch to manage these clusters. These clusters can very, get very big and to auto scale and, and um, you know, spin up and down these servers uh, as needed, uh, tools like AWS Batch are, are really great for that. And then lastly, uh, containers are, are getting very, very popular with machine learning workloads. Um, and so we're able to offer um, Elastic Kubernetes service and our Elastic Container services uh, to work very closely um, uh, on these kind of workloads and help manage uh, your containers. So now we'll switch uh, you know, to the inference side. And um, you know, Inferentia was uh, announced last year, and then we made it, generally, made it generally available this year with the Inf1 instances. Um, so you know, we're able to see uh, a ton of improvements uh, in inference workloads from a performance standpoint, uh, latency standpoint, and the, uh, and the cost to, to do inference. Um, these also have uh, you know, the latest generation uh, Intel processors and that 100 gigabit networking as well. And so you can see some of the, the uh, typical use cases for inference that, that we'll be supporting on this, as well as uh, supporting all the major frameworks. Um, and to, to dive a little deeper into this, let's look at some of the performance numbers and cost numbers around Inferentia. So G4, you know, we launched it just uh, you know, a month and a half ago. When we launched it, it was the, the best platform for inference that we had. Uh, very high throughput, very low cost uh, compared to you know, what was out there uh, at the time. But if we compare G4 versus the Inferentia instances, we're actually able to see about a 3x improvement in the throughput. Um, and due to uh, you know, the cost savings that we were able to see, uh, we're able to get 40% lower cost per inference uh, using Inferentia. And this is with uh, you know, a BERT model uh, that we're doing on TensorFlow. And so if you don't have you know, strong uh, dependencies on CUDA or uh, TensorRT and some of the NVIDIA libraries, we really think Inferentia will be a great option for uh, inference workloads. Uh, and then on G4, um, you know, we, we still see a lot of great advantages to G4, 
and you know, we have a lot of customers that are really excited about G4. And, and one particular area that you know, we did a little bit different on G4 is in the sizing. Um, we actually got some people that were a little confused on, on how the sizing worked. Um, and so customers were telling us, we want a single GPU, but we want just a tiny bit of CPU and memory. And then other customers would say, we want a single GPU and a lot of, uh, or single GPU and a lot of CPU and a lot of memory. Um, previous uh, GPU-based platforms did not really offer that flexibility. You got one GPU and a set amount of uh, CPU memory, and then you just double that and double that to get the various sizes. But with G4, we actually have five different sizes with all with a single GPU. Um, and so that really helps people optimize uh, exactly what they need and get the exact amount of compute that they need for their particular workload. Um, and we do also have multi-GPU sizes as well. Um, so G4, a very versatile platform in terms of um, not only machine learning workloads, but um, you know, graphics rendering workloads and, and some of the HPC type workloads. And a great way to take advantage of G4 is leveraging the, the content that NVIDIA is coming out with. And so uh, a popular SDK that uh, NVIDIA has is called DeepStream. And this is for intelligent video analytics. Right? So, and, and if you look at a lot of the, the standard uh, video analytics workloads, they all have a lot of the same blocks. Right? So the video is encoded, it needs to be decoded, or vice versa. Um, a lot of times with the images, they need to be pre-processed. You know, like, as I said, uh, cropping, rotation, uh, resizing, um, and then the actual inference piece as well. So DeepStream helps make that much easier. It provides a lot of the core building blocks uh, for these various functions and, and makes that much simpler to do. Um, included in the DeepStream SDK is actually uh, an example shown here around vehicle detection. So uh, this example shows uh, detection of the vehicles. It draws a bounding box around it. And, and not only does it detect the vehicle, it will also detect the make of the vehicle, whether it's a Honda or Mercedes or Toyota. Um, it will detect the color and also the type of the vehicle. So whether it's a car, SUV, a truck. Um, and so all that is done on, uh, on a single uh, GPU within the G4 instance. And you can see some of the, the performance results there. So using H.264, we would see over 30, frames, uh, or 30 streams simultaneously of 1080p resolution, 30 frames per second. Uh, and you know, almost double that once you go to H.265. Uh, and in both cases, there is actually still GPU um, uh, utilization that's, that's left that for other processing tasks. So, um, you know, we have a, a great relationship with NVIDIA and, you know, we have a lot of the support for their various SDKs um, with our GPU platforms. Um, and with that, uh, this slide is, uh, you know, over now. Um, so, and, and we'll, Maxim and I will be around for uh, questions and so please come up and, uh, and talk to us. Um, you know, we want to thank you guys for coming and, and I hope uh, this was useful for you guys. Um, we also have uh, some stickers, a small amount of stickers. If you guys want to come up and talk to us, uh, we can try to hand those out. Uh, but thank you guys for coming. <laughs>